The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolutions on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing that. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Mona Lena Cook. Mona is Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Women and Politics PhD program at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. She's one of the foremost scholars on gender and politics and has published many articles and books on the topic. In this episode, we'll talk in particular about her newest book, Violence Against Women in Politics, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Welcome to the podcast, Mona. Thank you very much. So let me start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I'm not a traditional big sports team fan, but I would say the Romanian gymnastics team. And what is your favorite political song? Actually, I also do research on youth and politics, and so one of my favorite songs on that topic is Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer, which is about Mm -hmm. why young people don't participate in politics and what that means and looking to the future when young people will be more involved in the political process and, and have a say in what goes on. And finally, what is your favorite political book? Jess Phillips's book, Every Woman, which was about her experiences in politics. I actually quote from it in my own book. So we'll talk about that new book, which is excellent, by the way. But I wanted to talk first a little bit about your previous work. So you've written a lot about quotas. Quota for women in politics, particularly party politics, have been around for quite a while in a lot of countries. They're still quite controversial, particularly, of course, within the right and the far right. Where does the research stand on this? Do quotas advance women politicians and do they advance, quote unquote, women issues? Yeah, well, I think that's a really important question. Quotas for Women in Politics was actually the title of my first book, which was based on my doctoral dissertation. And one of the questions I asked in that book was why quotas had spread around the world so rapidly over the course of about 10 to 15 years from the mid-1990s onward. And you know, at the time that I started studying that, there really wasn't an academic literature on it. We didn't really know much more than the fact that there were countries with quotas. Mm-hmm. But in those last 20 years, I would say it's the biggest, most rapidly expanding literature in politics and gender, especially comparative politics. And so we have amassed a pretty wide body of literature that doesn't just acknowledge that quotas exist or that they've been adopted, but also looks at their impact. Spent about five years doing research, all different regions of the world to understand what they actually meant. What did they mean for women's status in politics? What do they mean for democracy? You know, the furthering of women's rights. And so the literature is, of course, you know, quite nuanced, but I think that the take-home message from that work is that quotas have been an invaluable tool for enabling women to break through the barriers to enter into politics. It has changed political discourse. It has changed political debates. It has brought attention to some of the things that we wouldn't even have realized, at least, you know, in a very obvious way, prevent women's political participation, like the design of institutions, the scheduling of political meetings, All of these things work to prevent women's participation or to disempower them in the political process. 
And, you know, we've found that the women who come in through quotas, despite the controversy, tend to be, you know, among the most highly qualified, most diligent, and most responsive legislators. And so we really see that it's it's helped women, but it's also helped quality of democracy, the quality uh, of political discourse more broadly. So I, I would say that quotas have had a very positive impact, although they still remain controversial. They remain contested and questioned in different parts of the world. But I think we've come to the point where, you know, the question 20 years ago was, why do countries or political parties adopt quotas? I think the question now is, why do countries not adopt quotas, right? right. And so that's really the research question. I think the norm has shifted in, yeah. in a very short period of time. You also have argued that feminists should give up on critical mass theory. Could you explain just shortly what that theory holds and why feminists should give up on it? So critical mass theory is something that came out of the early research in the 1980s, in particular, into the 1990s. And it drew on the analogy, which was started in work in economics and sociology about the importance of numbers in group settings, or the proportion of members of dominant groups versus members of minority groups. There was an intuition among scholars as well as amongst activists who wanted to get more women into politics to argue that we needed a critical mass of women and that it wasn't enough to just elect one or two more women. And we really needed women to become, if not fully 50-50, they should be a large minority of elected Mm -hmm. assemblies. And critical mass theory has a connection to the quota debate because it's about the importance of the numbers of women. And at some point, you know, 30% was identified in public debates as the critical mass. And so we see from the mid-1990s that most quota policies, especially laws that are passed around the world, said parties had to nominate at least 30% women, right? And so the argument was the critical mass was very important for those arguments. So work I did with Sarah Childs. She and I were both concerned about some of the disjunctures between some of the political arguments and some of the scholarly work and how people think about the relationships of numbers. And we were very concerned about the idea that there was going to be an automatic change, right? So like nothing happens, we get to 30 or 31% and then suddenly everything is transformed. And we see that actually that doesn't necessarily happen, right? That as women's numbers increase, women potentially become more threatening to the status quo. So there's more active resistance. There can also be a greater diversity of women, right? So they're not all sort of feminist identified women who come together. So the work that I did with Sarah Childs really tried to sort of think about whether or not it was still a useful concept in political science to think about the connection between the numbers of women in politics and policy outcomes that were positive for women as a group. Just to summarize, you found that is not necessarily the case. Even if you get above that so-called threshold of 30%, you can Mm -hmm. actually see a situation where there are a lot of women, but women issues are not being advanced. Yeah, and I think that it puts a lot of emphasis on the numbers without thinking about the challenges to women's full empowerment as political actors doesn't just come down to numbers. It also has a lot to do with the broader political, social context. Uh, it has to do with party ideology, right? It has to do with domination processes, right? So there's a lot of things that can work against, you know, women coming to- together as a group to promote women's issues. And, you know, there's also the issue of what about men, right? And women's presence can also lead men to a more proactive stance towards women's issues and to support the initiatives of their female colleagues, right? So it's also about the broader cultural transformations in political spaces. Yeah. Let's talk about your new book, which has a rather dark topic, Violence Against Women in Politics. What do you mean specifically with that? Does that mean all violence against women or do you define it more specifically? 
So yes, this is a project that came out of my earlier work on quotas of women's political representation, because there was an expectation that with more women in politics, it was going to lead to greater empowerment of women and, and transformation of society. And some of the interviews I was doing in different parts of the world were highlighting ongoing resistance. The quotas or women's inclusion more broadly had not been met with open arms. There were efforts to get women to undermine the quota provisions, to, to get the women to leave politics or, or to resign. And so this is a project that tries to understand those experiences. I do a lot of work with groups outside of academia. So a lot of those groups like UN Women, the National Democratic Institute, have interested in quotas, women's political participation, also start to get concerned with this issue, the naming also tells you a little bit about how we understand what the issue is. So you call it political violence against women or electoral violence against women was one of the early ideas. And mm -hmm. the, the concern with that was that you focus on existing electoral violence frameworks and add women to those frameworks. But the concept of violence against women in politics takes a feminist understanding of violence against women and brings that into a political space where it had not traditionally been. And so this is a concept, how I use it in the book and how it's used by practitioners around the world is to understand it in terms of very broad definition of violence that doesn't reduce it to just physical attacks, but also understands it as psychological violence, sexual violence, economic violence, and then this concept of semiotic violence that I introduced in the book. But of course, there's a continuity between women's experiences with violence, you know, as just women and their experiences when they try to become politically active. This is also potentially a feature of their experiences. You focus specifically on violence against women that is aimed at keeping women outside of politics, right? And that reminded me of Kate Mann's work, Down Girl, and the recent book Enchanted, where she defines misogyny in a sense as not so much hatred against women, but it's about keeping women in their place. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you also describe that to a certain extent, this is also a staged or a phased process because sometimes it is just about having a woman in the party. Sometimes it is having a woman in parliament, but sometimes men are okay with having a few women in parliament, but can still be mm -hmm. engaged in violence when that woman wants to become party leader, for example. Absolutely. And I think this is the connection to critical mass theory, potentially. This idea that as there are more women in these spaces, they start to have an impact on the political discourse and, and they do have more voices in, in politics. And that can be very challenging to people who've traditionally held that space. And Kate Mann's work is really wonderful. And I think it's interesting that her work has appeared at the same time as a whole host of new books on anger and women's politics and misogyny and thinking about sexism. And so we're really at this moment where I think it's something that's of concern to people across many different academic disciplines and different spaces. I think her definition of misogyny is very important because in her book, she talks about the naive conception of misogyny is just like hatred towards women. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, there are really no true misogynists in that naive sense because people, you know, maybe love their mother, they love their wife, they love their daughter. Right. And so no one's misogynist if that's our definition. And for her, the conception of misogyny is about the preservation of existing gender roles. So people are very happy with women who continue to conform to those gendered expectations. It's the women who step out of those roles that elicit a backlash. So it's a selective targeting of uh, particular types of women, right? Doing particular types of things. So it works very well, I think, in terms of how we understand violence against women in politics. I can imagine that if you would talk about this type of violence against women in politics, that many on the right or far right would say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. I mean, this is like Muslim countries. 
is this violence specific to a certain culture or do we also see it in the so-called emancipated West? That was a really important aim of my book, which was to show this is a global phenomenon that crosses many different contexts. And, you know, this is true of violence against women more broadly, right? It appears in every democracies and non-democracies and in rich countries and poor countries and all types of ethnic groups, age groups. It is a, a universal problem. It exists universally. So it was very important to me that throughout the book, when I use examples, I often use them from different regions of the world. And I thought that was very important to highlight that all countries have some work to do to address this resistance to, to women's full and equal political participation. On the issue of Muslim countries, I find this very interesting because of different ideas about behavior. You know, some women that I have spoken to from these countries say that actually there seems to be less violence against women in the political sphere in countries like the United Arab Emirates, for example. So where the issue seems to be very prominent and visible, it really can be really any country in the world, including the United States, Europe, Australia. In this respect, social media plays an important role, right? It does. And this is one of the questions that I confronted was to understand if this is a new phenomenon. Is this something that we're just seeing now? Or is there mm -hmm. something about the current context that is, is sort of accelerating it? And I agree with many of the women I, I spoke to for this book who said that, you know, this resistance and this violence, this hostility has always been there, but now there are more tools to perpetrate it. And, you know, together with a context of increasing political polarization, it seems that there are more people out there. There's more of an environment that sort of fosters that social media abuse. You talk a little bit about the role of the far right and its obsession with gender ideology. And I was wondering whether you can talk a little bit more about it, because when I started studying the far right, most of the far right was what is sometimes called benevolent sexist, very protective of women. And now you see much more the misogyny that Kate Mann and you are talking about. Does that have to do with the shifting power? And how realistic is their assessment of the power of women? What is fascinating to me is that in addition to this whole new literature on misogyny, we're also seeing a revival of research on backlash, and that's by gender scholars and non-gender scholars as well. But I'd say that gender ideology fits very much in a, in a backlash framework, which has traditionally been understood as like a reaction to gains being made, in this case by women or, or women's rights. And so the movement against gender ideology frames itself as positioned against what they see as the overreaching of state policies on women's rights and LGBTQ rights, as well as women's participation in politics. But when we look globally, you know, there's a huge way to go for equality and feminist transformation, you know, and as well as the numbers of women in politics, there's only three countries that have elected more women than men to their national parliament. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a misperception, but it's clearly seen as a deep enduring threat to people on the far right. You argue that violence against women in politics harms not just female politicians as well as women issues, but it also actually harms democracy as such. It does. It does. I have a whole chapter near the end of the book that looks at this explicitly in terms of the political and, and social implications. And maybe this is like a good time to explain why I think violence against women in politics is different from other forms of violence in politics. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, one of the reactions I've often gotten when I've presented my work is that people say what, you know, conflict and hostility, that's sort of normal politics, right? People should have some sort of, you know, robust political debate. And this idea of plurality of competing voices, I think that's democracy. 
where work on political violence has sort of drawn the line is to say that there's an impact of violence on democracy when the violence is used to suppress one particular political position, right? So your political opponents are targeted for this violence. And we have a lot of, you know, international frameworks, a huge literature that understands that there are democratic costs to those types of violence. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about in the book is a third type of violence that has not yet been talked about uh, as extensively, which is violence that specifically targets women as political actors. And it's about excluding and disempowering them in, in the political realm. And what is so shocking about this form of violence is that we find amongst the few studies that have come out so far is that this violence tends to be perpetrated, much like other cases of violence against women more generally, by people that women know, right? So it's perpetrated by members of their own political parties, by members of their own communities, members of their own families. And so this is quite different. It's about who can participate, who's recognized as a full and equal political actor. And so when we start to think about that, we can think, okay, so this is fundamentally about women's political rights will stop. But we also see that the down the road implications is that, well, when women are forced to deal with harassment, abuse, you know, when they're in elected office, well, that takes a lot of time away from actually doing substantive political work, right? It, it also means some women have talked about that they, they don't take up and speak out about controversial issues because they know they're going to be attacked for it. It results in the self-censoring. Yep. And we also, um, you know, just talk about a third impact that there seems to be an impact on women's political ambition in the broader population. So they see how badly women, especially young women, are treated and they say, you know, I used to want to run for office, but, you know, I'm not going to do that now. Or women who do run are running. They drop out of the race before it's even gotten to the election. And so there's almost like this, you know, environmental impact of violence against women in politics doesn't just affect the women, but affects democracy and, you know, other citizens more broadly. And I think there's multifaceted challenges to democracy or something we really need to pay attention to and and seek to counteract. Right. And this is all made worse in part because it didn't have a name, as you rightfully state in the book. Mm-hmm. Violence against women in politics, as well as the consequences of it, are still not taken very serious by large groups of those with power, including men. You write also about the importance of Me Too in raising awareness. How does Me Too feature in here? Well, that was really an unanticipated event that happened in the course of my research. And so I had a a fellowship from Carnegie Corporation under this research, and it started in September 2017. And the Me Too movement started in October 2017. And a lot of the discussions I was having I did interviews in seven countries across all different regions of the world, and it really became a huge part of the conversation. You know, we know that sexual violence occurs in all spheres, so we shouldn't be surprised that it also happens in politics. But it also turns out that there are features of politics which enhance the abuse of power and make it even more difficult for women to speak out or to be heard. For example, I mentioned before about violence against women in politics within political parties and, you you know, in many cases, women are harassed by members of their own parties, and mm-hmm. they're strongly discouraged from speaking out because it's going to make the party look bad, be something that's weaponized by the other, you know, competing party to make their own party look bad. What is so important about the Me Too movement is that it has normalized speaking out. I start the book by talking about, well, why haven't we talked about this issue before? And I talk about all the reasons why women haven't spoken out about mm-hmm. this experience. You know, they didn't have a name for it. They've been socialized not to think that it's a problem. They've been actively suppressed from speaking out or there just was no one to tell. No one really cared. And this is shifting now. And I, I really hope that this book, you know, which highlights the wonderful work being done all around the world to tackle this problem is going to help us get to a place where we can 
can really talk about it and women can be freer to speak out and against these types of experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that too. I think one of the really great strengths of the book is that you're actually charting the way that this problem has been tackled and been given a name in a sense in the real world by Mm -hmm. politicians, by practitioners, and how it has been studied. And you merge that. You want to study this in an academic, solid way, but for the real world. And that's also why at the end of the book, you speak about different things that we can do about it. What are some of the important things that we as a society, as individual actors can do against violence against women in politics? Oh, I thought that was really an important thing to do in this book was to to talk about not just the problem, but also some of the emerging solutions. So I, I have some chapters where I, I catalog violence against women in politics looks like in different parts of the world, but then also try to do the same for those emerging solutions. And I think the number one thread that comes out of that exercise was the importance of awareness raising and naming this, this experience. And I think that's something that everyone can obviously do. Mm-hmm. You know, individuals affected or people witnessing this through the bystanders of it. But we also see that there is growing a movement in terms of international framework. So we have now several UN General Assembly resolutions. The Organization of American States has created a declaration on violence against women in politics. And even the new ILO Convention on Violence and Harassment in the World of Work, Mm -hmm. I think it, it fills a lot of the gaps that would exist in terms of dealing with this issue. And so I think this very interesting development especially in Latin America, we're seeing state-led measures. So the creation of new bills, new offices, new protocols for dealing with this problem. We have political parties that have started to change their internal party codes of conduct, right? That prohibit bullying during meetings or that for people who commit abuse on social media could lose their party membership. There are things happening at a, a number of different levels. And I think what that tells me is that there's really a place for everyone and, and all institutions to, to take steps to intervene in this problem. and But the awareness raising, I think, is the first start, right, for people to connect their experiences, to share their experiences, and, and that yeah. leads to important transformations. Yeah, and of course, awareness raising requires a name, and in that sense, like, this book is so important. So while you actually, in the book, discuss many misperceptions, what is the most important misperception about violence against women in politics? Well, I would think that that is the perception that violence is just the cost of doing politics. I've worked for now about five years with the National Democratic Institute, which in 2016 launched what they called the Not the Cost campaign, which Mm -hmm. was to say that we shouldn't normalize and accept this type of violence in politics as like politics as usual. If you want to be politically active, you just have to subject yourself to, to these types of behaviors. And so I think that's been a really important stumbling block in terms of people understanding the particularities of, of this problem and that we actually contribute to the violation of women's political rights, human rights, undermine gender equality if we just accept and normalize this violence. I fully agree. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Mona. Thank you so much. I just love that you uh, reached out to talk about it. I really appreciate it. If you want to know more about Mona Lena Krupp, you can check out her website at mlkrupp.org.org, not .com, or follow her on Twitter at at mlkrupp, K-R-O-O-K. And you really should buy her new book, Violence Against Women in Politics, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is
fumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and read his melody later. I'd see him down the dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.